0: Thank you. Delighted
2: to be here.
0: Yeah. I mean, it really is um, such a pleasure and privilege for me because I've been a big fan of yours for for many, many years. I think I've been as a bookseller. I started off as a bookseller and I was selling your books on the shop floor back then. And I think I might have even sold your first book, actually, when I think about it. It goes way back. 20
2: 20 years? Well, this is book number 20 now. So that was... A
0: few years ago. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I've been in the industry for about 30 years. So yeah, yeah. I'll introduce you for those that might not have heard of you, which I can't think of many people, but let's give it a go. Um, (laughs) Dr. Kathy Reich's first novel, Deja Dead, published in 1997, won the Ellis Award for Best First Novel and was an international bestseller. She's written another 19 bestsellers since, and it was the producer of Fox Television's longest-running scripted drama, Bones, which is based on her work and her novels. Kathy is one of the very few forensic anthropologists certified by the American Board of Forensic Anthropology. She served on the Board of Directors and as Vice President of both the American Academy of Forensic Sciences and the American Board of Forensic Anthropology, and is currently a professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte. The Bone Code, the book that's out now, is Cathy's twentieth entry in her best-selling series featuring forensic anthropologist Temperance Brennan. I mean, wow! And do you know, I often think there's many books, and you will know this because you're probably a great reader yourself, that people lose their groove as writers, and the characters sometimes lose their groove. But Temperance hasn't, has she? <laughs> well, I hope she hasn't, and um,
2: that's a challenge. I yeah. work hard at that to keep readers interested in what Tempe's doing and to keep her evolving and changing and growing and facing new problems in each book.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think that's interesting. And it's interesting to watch characters age. I quite like that as a reader.
2: That's something you have to consciously make a decision about. If you've got a continuing character series, do you age your character in real time? Or you know, what do you do about that? And I, even in the opening books, I was a little vague. Uh, We know she's seen 40 come and go. So she's um, older than that, but I've never been very specific and she's definitely not aged in real time. No, but she has grown up. I think so, yes. I think yeah. so. And social relationships and her daughter has grown up. I think the cat must be about 50 now.
0: So. <laughs> That's right. All right. Tell us a little bit about the bone code because there's some things in there that I'd like to discuss.
2: Well, I did a lot of research on the human genome and we now have the entire human genome mapped out and we there are tools to actually modify it. So I was reading about this and I thought, well, what if someone used those tools for less than noble purposes. So that's kind of a theme, the the bone code, the the genetic code, kind of a theme running through the story. It starts with uh, Tempe having just uh, hunkered in with her cat and survived a hurricane. She heads down to help her friend Anne at one of the barrier islands off Charleston, South Carolina which is where I have a beach home uh, because Anne has had some damage. So she's just arriving in Charleston County And the coroner phones her and says, this medical waste uh, container washed ashore and there are two bodies in it. And would you please help me with it? So Tempe agrees reluctantly to help with this case. And as she's doing that in the autopsy room, she's noticing details that are just disturbingly similar to details of a case she did 15 years earlier in Montreal. So there
0: is um, a few um, issues there that I'd like to touch on because there is, it's not a pandemic, but there is, is it a virus going around, a, a flesh eating virus?
2: Yeah, it's its uh, kind of a flesh eating uh, capnocytophagia. Yeah. Um, it's a virus that's found in the mouths of normally any a healthy cat or dog. And most people, you know, have no issue with it, but a very few people are very susceptible to this virus and it can cause devastating effects in the body yeah. uh, if you're one of those individuals. So that does play a role in the story. Right. Was there any influence of COVID or you wrote this pre-COVID? I wrote it pre-COVID Did, yeah, wow. yeah. and I wrote all about uh, vaccine production and MRI. Yes mRNA vaccines and all that way before COVID. And yeah, so it's kind of ironic. Talk to me about the role of anthropologists in a pandemic. Well, I'm not sure we have a terribly active role. I think if you would have a situation, we work for coroners and medical examiners. Um, So if you... Have a situation where your office is overwhelmed with deaths, with bodies coming in, particularly bodies that are not recovered right away and that might be decomposed. We work on the decomposed, the burned, the mutilated, the skeletal, the mummified, the dismembered, the mutilated. Any any time a normal autopsy couldn't be done, so we wouldn't have a major role in a pandemic. Uh, such as COVID. But um, I do have colleagues who work in major medical examiner facilities and they've, of course, been called on to, to jump in as well.
0: I was thinking too, in light of what happened in New York in the first phase and the horrendous news we're hearing out of India, I wondered how, do you ever really keep up with autopsies? Is it, how does that process happen? I guess it was the same with 9-11. When you're di- talking about mass deaths, what is then the role of an anthropologist?
2: Now, my role, and I did work following 9-11. I, did I know that, yeah. In New York, uh, there it was just recovery. It was just really, everything was so fragmentary that it was just determining, is this human or is this not? Because there were a lot of animal remains because of there were restaurants in the Twin Towers, catering services, that sort of thing. So is it human? If so, we would tag it and it would be picked up and taken to the ME office for later DNA identification. So that's one role of the anthropologist in mass disasters is helping collect, recover the dead, and then once you're back at the facility, helping identify the dead. And
0: so how would they be involved in, say, in what happened in New York? Because I know that there was at one point there, there was really, um, I don't know, mass morgues. Would that
2: be right? Big refrigerator trucks had to be brought in and Mm. um, you weren't at least my experience is we weren't recovering whole bodies we were just recovering bits and fragments but those had to be refrigerated until they could be taken care of properly other disasters such as an airline disaster, you know ironically i wrote um fatal voyage which talks about disaster recovery and how the anthropologist functions in that case um it was a commercial airline airliner that went down and and um that's one of the main functions of what's called D-MORT in the United States, Disaster Mortuary Operational Response Teams. And I was a member of uh, my regional team for many, many years. So that's, and ironically, that book came out in August of 2001. And a month later was when the Twin Towers um, terrorist attack took place. So that was kind of prescient as well. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Maybe we need to uh, ha- psychoanalyze your books a bit more and be really? predictive <laughs> on what's going to happen and what's going to come up. Okay. So, I, I mean, you've really had several careers running in parallel, haven't you? I want to go back to where it all started. Where did you grow up and how did your love of reading and your love of writing come to be?
2: I grew up in the Midwest, um, partly in Illinois near Chicago and partly in Minnesota, I've lived in the South, though, for the the vast majority of my life. There was just one snowstorm too too many, and I said, "I'm I'm going south." My love of reading came from my mother. I think she was uh, very much a, a reader. She used to lead. We had a uh, television and radio shows back in the day called Great Books, and she used to lead those discussions on, on mostly radio, but occasionally on television. So she was she was quite a reader. So I've always been a reader. I mean, when I was a little kid, I was that kid with the flashlight under the blankets, you know, reading. And what what were you reading? Oh, I was reading Nancy Drew mysteries. I was reading, I love the books of Thor Heyerdahl about the the Contiki, the raft and um, the one about Easter Island. I loved exotic stuff like that. I also loved Robin Hood was one of my, I I read these big, thick volumes on, on Robin Hood. Those are my earliest memories of of re- well, other than little kitty books, you know. But uh, yeah, my love of writing uh, came quite a bit later. Um, I really didn't like, when I was in university, I wanted to be in the science lab. I was taking physiology and zoology and botany. And uh, once I took a physical anthropology course, then I knew that's what I wanted to do. So I went straight on and got my PhD in that. So I really didn't have a love of writing, creative writing. You have to be able to write, of course, if you're going to be a scientist and uh, you have to write reports and you have to write clearly and and succinctly and correctly. But um, I decided to try my hand at fiction around that in spring break from university. I was teaching full time at university and also commuting at that point between North Carolina and Montreal to do forensic casework, which is 1200 miles. It was a crazy commute. Wow.
0: Can I they- just interrupt there for a minute? How many women were in your class?
2: In my PhD cohort? Well, in science at the time. Were there a lot of women? A, a journalist once asked me about the forensic sciences in general. Mm. And we got out. I belong to the American Academy of Forensic Sciences, and it's divided into sections. There's the dentists and there's the engineers and there's the pathologist and there's um, who else is in there, the chemists. So we got down um, and counted the number of women who were board certified, just as an example, in uh, in anthropology, and it ran about three to one, three men mm. for each woman. But we counted the dentistry section of board certification. It was 99 to 1. So I think because anthropology is more academically based, it's not quite as skewed in terms of gender.
0: Right, okay. So you're teaching at university, is that right? mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, teaching at
2: the University of North Carolina in Charlotte. Yeah. And then I would periodically fly to Montreal and do whatever cases – had accumulated in my absence or testify or whatever it was I had to do so in 1990, 94, I think I made right around that time I made full professor which is the highest rank wow. you've so you were
0: very well established in your career by then
2: yes to make high professor uh, full professor at university that's that's a pretty big deal so, I was free to do whatever I wanted to do after that. So, I had just worked on a serial murder case. And so, I had the freedom to try something new. And I had a story idea, at least the core of a story idea. And I just decided I would take a stab at writing fiction. I had a colleague who was doing that, who was writing Western romances straight to paperback. <laughs> and I read one and I thought, yeah. I can do this. So, um, was
0: there any crime writers you were reading at the time that you felt might Oh, I'm be-
2: sure. I'm sure. Uh, in the mid 90s, I'm sure I was reading, yeah. you know, Michael Connolly and I don't know, of, of course, the, the classics, P.D. James and, yeah. and Agatha Christie and uh, Raymond Chandler and, you know, all of those, but also modern commercial fiction writers like. Michael Connolly, maybe Ian Rankin was already writing back then. So I enjoyed their works a lot.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're working on a real life serial murder, was that right?
2: I had just, it had just wrapped up. The trial had uh, finished. He'd been convicted of multiple counts of first degree murder. So I would never, I do take story ideas from cases, but only if they're out there already, if they're in the public domain because of court transcripts or because of news coverage. So yeah, yeah. I, of course. what I do is I take the central idea and then I ask myself, okay, so what if this and what if that and what if that, and then spin it off into fiction. I change all the names and the dates and the places. Mm.
0: So go back to your first novel. So you decided you're going to try your hand at it. Was it harder than you, how did it come to you? Like, was it something you thought, you know cuz i can imagine some people think ah oh, this is going to be really easy to write 90,000 words in a year <laughs> but others might have found, might find that more challenging how did you approach it and how did you find it
2: yeah i didn't think in terms of words i'm still not clear on words i thought in terms yeah. of i'm going to write about you know 35 chapters of 10 pages each yeah um, cuz i knew nothing about creative writing and nothing except i wanted to Write the kind of book I liked to read, and I liked to read the grittier stuff. Um, I liked to read writing that was tight and and not flowery and florid. I'd been working with cops for you know two decades at that, and medical examiners and for two decades at that point, I I had an ear for the dialogue and for what was going on around me in the autopsy room and at you know at a crime scene. So I just uh, sat down and, you know, outlined the first book. I outlined pretty much the whole thing. And then I, I just started, just started writing. And it just came to you,
0: you wrote and wrote and wrote?
2: Well, and I edited and edited and edited and edited. I'm probably not the most efficient writer because I can't stand, Stephen King once said to me, just, you know, do it, get it on paper and then put it in a drawer and then go back and polish and edit. I can't do that. Yeah. I edit constantly as I go. Right. So um, that, that was my, and I'm a linear writer. I start with chapter one and do chapter two, three, four. My daughter is a writer. And if she's in a happy mood, she writes the love scene. And if she's blue, she writes the death scene. I, mm, that's wrong. (laughs) I I have to start at the beginning and
1: end at the end. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, It's a, it's a t-shirt
2: You have an
1: Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
0: So how did that happen? I mean, you know, how did you get it
2: published? Well, when I finished it, I had no clue how to get published. No. So um, my daughter had a friend who had a friend who had a friend who worked at a publishing house okay, maybe we could send it to her. So she, you know, but what does she do? Maybe she works in the, you know, the donut shop. Yeah. So <laughs> friends, friends, friends. Turned out she's a junior editor. At okay. So I thought, yeah. Okay. So we composed a cover letter and we mailed it off to Mary Sue Rucci. The whole manuscript. The whole thing. In those days you mailed, you know, it yes. was, Mary Sue is on the other end. And she's been told that her friends, 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 mother's first novel is coming (laughs) her way. (laughs) So she told me later, she took a few chapters and left Manhattan to go. I think she was living in Brooklyn at the time. And um, it was a weekend. And she read them. She got in her car. She went back. She got the rest of the manuscript. It was all hard copy then. It wasn't electronic. She took it home. She handed it up to um, the woman who became my um, editor. And um, I had an offer within, I don't know, two weeks. Wow. Yeah. It's not the way to go about getting published.
0: (laughs) Why? Why is that?
2: Yeah, it just isn't. I've had publishers tell me that if it doesn't come through an agent, they're probably not even going to look at it. So you really need um, for for new debut authors, I might, advice would be to get an agent
0: yeah even getting an agent is tough isn't it yeah I mean it's
2: it's tough for debut authors right now because publishing houses are you know they've experienced some financial difficulties and they tend to be going with the the tried and true I think and to take a chance on a debut author is um they're 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 of course doing it but it's a big risk Yeah. So do you know,
0: there's that, and lots of people talk about it, there's that sliding doors moment of um, career or life change. And for you, was that a sliding, like, was it you had to then make a conscious decision, is, is I'm do I continue to be a scientist or do I continue to be an author, or is it that you needed to make a choice or could you do both? Tell me how that went.
2: At the beginning I did all three because oh, I was wow. studying, teaching university, doing the forensic work, and now I was writing because my first contract was a two-book contract. So I continued, and I didn't tell anyone at, at the university that I was writing fiction. If you write a novel in an English department, you're, you know, a hero. If you write a novel in a science department, you're kind of suspect. So I didn't, I didn't really tell anyone. And I wrote it again on weekends and summers and vacations. And so um, I was doing all three for a while. That was difficult. Then I went on, I requested and was given sabbatical. Yes. So I was then on leave from the university on sabbatical for the next, I think, six years, whatever the maximum allowance was. And then I knew I wasn't going to return to teaching. I was still doing casework because I really felt that was important for the authenticity of my books to be still actively involved. So they rolled my uh, professorship, my position, over to the chancellor's office, and um, I was. I just retired like two weeks ago, officially from the university. But I haven't taught since nineteen ninety seven or something. Yeah. So then I continued doing the forensic work and writing the novels.
0: So when you're traveling, and you know on that card that you have to fill out, when it says occupation,
2: <laughs> yeah. what do you say? Yeah, I know where you're going with that. Yeah. Is it, is it <laughs> professor? Is it writer? Is it anthropologist? <laughs> now I think I just put writer because it's, it's just easier.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's nice to have choices, isn't it? So it started with writing, and then you... What is it? You were doing a book every second year, is that right? No, I was doing a book every year. Every year, wow. And then
2: beginning and the, the show went on the air, Bones went on the air in 2005. I want and to then talk about that. that. I, started, <laughs> I started writing screenplays, uh, epi- you know, episodes. So, so that was you know, your fourth job. Well, I wasn't teaching, so I added back a third, yeah, you know, <laughs> right. just a producer. I and I was a producer, not the producer. Right. So at what book number did you
0: get the television series?
2: Um, The show went on air in 2005. So uh, do the math. Three, I had done eight books maybe at that point. Is that right? And how did that come about? I had been approached by others, uh, but it was never the right feel, the right vibe. But when uh, Hart Hansen, who came to be our showrunner, and Barry Josephson, an exec- the executive producer, when they approached me, we just seemed to be on the same page. We had the same vibe about not wanting to just do another police procedural. We wanted to have a character-based show. We wanted to create characters that, uh, on screen that people would care about, become invested in. We wanted humor in the show which I do in the books, um, which is hard. That is hard. And that's a delicate balancing act because you're dealing every episode or every book with violent death. So how can you be witty and not be offensive? But we just seemed to be, and they wanted my involvement. They they actively, well, or at least they agreed to my involvement and um, actively would consider my input. People often ask, did you have control? No, I didn't have control once you signed that deal. Um, but they genuinely did uh, honor my input. And I did work. Uh, I wrote, read every script, all 246 scripts over, you know, 12 years, as you say. We were the longest running Yeah. Drama drama on the history of Fox. So uh, I am not one of these authors that will say they took my work and, uh, you know, destroyed it. I had a great experience.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right. I mean, I think it's the collaboration when it feels right from the beginning. That's, Mm -hmm. I think that's a really good sign when you're feeling like you're pushing back, pushing back. That's when I think things start to go wrong. Yeah. Hey, let me ask you this. If you had to choose only one And I'm saying to you, okay, that's it. You can only have one of those careers now. Oh, gosh. I know. Have you been asked that before? Well,
2: well, here's another monkey wrench that entered the picture over the course of beginning 10 years ago, 11 years ago, is grandchildren. I now have six grandchildren, 11 and and down to age five. So um, they're here on the East Coast, uh, four right here in Charlotte with me and two six hours away in Washington, D.C., so it would be hard for me to go full-time TV production, Yeah. but I really did enjoy it. I yeah. really did enjoy that. And I could see writing more more screenplays. Would I want to do that and give up writing books? Probably not.
0: Yeah. It's wonderful that you have choices. Um, I think grandchildren is, I don't have grandchildren myself, but I have great nieces and nephews. And every Monday afternoon, I have two of them and it's life-changing, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I really, I hear you actually had them over last night. Um, But anyway, um, it's really interesting, like when you look back on a career and do you think the formation of a career like yourself, is it luck? Is it chance? Is it hard work? Is it a combination? I mean, how do we get to where we are?
2: I think it's a combination of those things. It takes motivation. Mm. It takes drive. I think you can't sit back and wait for opportunities to fall in your lap. I mean, you are the one that would have to sit down and um, apply for that university professorship or sit down and write that book you have to make it happen but then I do think part of it is luck maybe I sent in that manuscript for deja dead right at the right time to the right person just by happenstance Mm. because I sure didn't know what I was doing I was not going about it properly to get published and yet I did Mm. so I do think it's a combination of both also timing it was the mid nine, the late 90s and um Forensic science was just rearing its head and people who had, everyone had just ignored us. We worked in our labs for for years and no one paid any attention or even knew what forensic science was. And then beginning in the mid 90s, boom, it was explosive. So I think the timing, you know, maybe I contributed a little to that, but I also certainly benefited from that surge. And and was the, the surge due to TV? You know, I, I often wonder if it was due here in the States, we were exposed 24 seven to the OJ Simpson trial um, and people heard about blood spatter patterns and they heard about stab wound trajectories and they heard about, you know, DNA. And I just, I just wonder if it didn't start because that's about the time it started. Mm, mm. And now there's not any detective book or mystery, no matter how cozy that, doesn't at least have to mention the coroner and the medical examiner.
0: Yeah, yeah. Do you know, there's been a little bit of conversation. I don't know if it's happening in the US, but I'm hearing about it. And I don't know if it's just here because I tend to read international news. But there's been conversation and, and a little bit of criticism around crime fiction and that the victims are always female and that it's been a feminist conversation, if you like. Mm-hmm. And I'm, you know, because I'm a ferocious crime reader as well, and I'm in two minds about it. I, I'm I'm not quite sure what I think about it and I have to do more reading, but it seems to me that men do kill women. I mean, it's not far-fetched, right?
2: Men are more often than not the killers. They kill yeah. women. They also kill men. Yeah. So I, you know, maybe that's a good thing and that it brings that out, that mm. this is this is a problem that there is violence against women. I know in my books, I've always tried to change the parameters of who the victim is. Yes, I've had women be the victims. I've also had gay men be the victims. I've also had the elderly be the victims. So I've really tried to to move that around. Mm. equal opportunity violence (laughs) yeah it's
0: an interesting conversation isn't it because I mean I'm hearing hearing the the comments and I I do agree with them to a certain extent but women aren't killing women at the moment so not to the same degree and and also when I read crime I don't think necessarily I mean I tend to keep away from really gruesome stuff but it for me it's the thrill and the suspense is what Mm -hmm. I'm after
2: well, and I think it's also the puzzle. Can you figure yes. out in a thriller? Yes, can I figure it out before the author tells me? Yes, that's right. And that's yeah. what keeps you reading, you know, you're just freaking, yeah. keeps reading. Um, as a writer, I think it's fair to, you, you lay out the clues leading to the solution. They have to make sense. You can't rely on um, coincidence. And it's fair to put red herrings in there. As long as they make sense, they're plausible and you tie them off and you explain them. So it's the reader's job to sort through all that. And I know as a reader, if I figure it out before the author tells me, I'm disappointed. You are, author. aren't you?
0: Yeah, yeah, you are. Because anything, why should I continue reading? Um, yeah. in Australia here, we're having a real surge of crime writing. If for some reason in, in throughout my career, um, good crime only came from international writers like yourself, uh like Mike, Michael Connolly, who you mentioned, um, Stephen King. And we had a. a fabulous crime writer called Michael Robotham, he might know of. But anyway, since then, a lot of the young debut writers are writing crime, like Jane Harper. And we're really seeing an Australian surge in crime writing that really has a great sense of place. You know, it's set in the Australian outback or it's set in an urban environment. And for me, it's been interesting because I would have always thought crime is crime. Did it need a unique setting? But it it does make a difference, doesn't it? Do you have a view around that? And,
2: and I think it's more than just the setting. I think it's more the cultural perspective. And yes. there are things you share as Australians that, you know, maybe the other, the rest of the world doesn't get. Mm-hmm. So I found that when I f- set my first book in Montreal, it's because it's a city I love, a city I'm very familiar with because I've been working there and uh, going there for 30 years now. But uh, I learned later that publishers often dissuaded American authors from doing that, from setting it in a Canadian setting, because there isn't. And Montreal, Quebec, especially, it's a different climate. It's a different language. It's just a different world view. It's it's more like Paris than New York kind of thing. But when I did the second book, I asked my editor, "Should I move it to the states?" And she said, "No, absolutely not. You just keep it right there in Montreal because it did what I wanted it to do. It was a setting that was exotic enough." That non Quebecers found, non Canadians found it interesting, but it was close enough to Americans that they were comfortable with it. So, mm.
0: did you think that you would have interna- the international success that you've had?
2: N- no, not international. I was hoping that when I was writing it, I was hoping that a publisher would buy it, people would read it, and they would like it. You know, you have those moments where you think, oh, this is going to be a series. It's going to be a hit. It's going to be a movie or whatever. And then you think, you know, get real. Just just finish the book. Just but so. I never thought it would go, I forget how many languages. Not every book is in every one, but it's like 36 languages or something. It's, it's, she's a, Temperance Brennan is all of, and Bones too is in every foreign territory in the world. Yeah. And Kathy Rocks, I think, is a household name everywhere. Well, Maybe. I don't know. Yeah, Yeah, I think it is. Uh, Are you working on your next one? I am. I am. I've, I've uh, in the early stages of it. I don't know what to tell you. It's going to bring in, I don't, it's right now the title is book 21. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Great title. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Subject to change. And it's going to bring out a lot of Tempe's past. It's going to revisit some old cases. That's all I'm going to tell you. Okay, all right.
0: Um, and when we're able to travel, and I don't know when that's going to be, will you come back and visit us?
2: I would love to. I would. It's yeah. t- been way too long.
0: Now um, you'll have to um, bring your grandchildren out too the next time you come.
2: Oh boy, yeah. That, <laughs> they're a little army. Those there's uh, four boys and two girls. So. Yeah,
0: that'd be lovely. All right, thank you so much, Kathy, for your time. Really enjoyed our conversation.
2: Thank you. It was a pleasure.
1: luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
2: Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.